Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Hey, guys. I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you love the show, you can become a contributor at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted. For just a buck a month, which is less than what you'd pay for a bad cup of coffee, you'll gain access to contributors-only bonus episodes, in addition to knowing that you're helping to sustain the output of this independent podcast. The bonus episode for our current miniseries on ancient Greek philosophy explores the etymology of stoic. Speaking of coffee, I've also got Words for Granted mugs that are only available to the contributors on Patreon, so please check those out. Alright, let's get on to our last and perhaps most surprising episode in this series on words derived from Greek philosophy. In 2018, going to the gym isn't exactly something that I associate with philosophy. Of course, if you're a personal trainer, you might have a philosophy about the best way to get rock-hard abs in five easy steps in just 30 minutes a day for 30 days. But a philosophy, in this sense, is more like a practical methodology than a deep inquiry into the nature of reality. If you happen to be one of the few personal trainers in the world who gives out free copies of Plato's Symposium to your clients, then you, my friend, are an exception to the rule. However, the crazy thing is that in the ancient Greek world, most people going to the gym were reading Plato's Symposium alongside many other works of philosophy. Just for the record, I don't mean that these people were reading philosophy at home during their leisure time and then going to the gym later. They would actually read philosophy at the gym. Clearly, the activities we do at the gym have changed over time. As we'll see over the course of this episode, it's not only the activities we do at the gym that have changed over time, but also the cultural function of the gym itself. Now, my usage of the word gym in this ancient historical context, though amusing, is a little anachronistic and self-indulgent, so let me clarify something up front. The word gym is a shortening of the word gymnasium, and this shortened form gym doesn't appear in the written record until the late 19th century. Naturally, gymnasium is the older of the two words, and it ultimately derives from the ancient Greek word gymnasion. So when I said that people in the ancient Greek world were reading Plato's Symposium at the gym, what I really mean to say is that they were reading Plato's Symposium at the gymnasium. A Greek gymnasion was a large building that was originally used for athletic training, but over time came to be used for philosophical study and discussion. We'll get more into the details of this evolution in a minute, but for now, let's take a look at the word's etymology. Gymnasion derives from the Greek verb gymnasein, which meant to train, 
and gumnazin derives from the word gumnos, which meant naked. In fact, the verb gumnazin literally meant to train naked, but to Greek speakers in the ancient world, that would have been implicit in the word itself. So, by extension, a gymnasion, or gymnasium, literally meant a place of nakedness. So, does that mean that people went to the gym naked? Yes, it does. Originally, all Greek male athletes trained and competed in the nude. This was intended to cultivate an aesthetic appreciation of the athletic male body from the perspective of man to man. The striving for this idealized perfection of form was seen as an offering to the gods. Believe it or not, gumnos, the Greek word for naked that's the basis of gymnasium, is actually cognate with the word naked. Unlike gymnasium, which is of course ultimately a Greek word, naked is a native English word that's been around in the language since Old English. Gymnasium wasn't borrowed into the language until the 1500s, and we'll talk more about that later. If we trace both gymnasium and naked all the way back to the Proto-Indo-European language, that is the prehistoric mother tongue of most of the major language families ranging from Western Europe all the way east to India, we find that both of these words come from the reconstructed Proto-Indo-European root word noguos. Both naked and noguos have an initial N sound, so we can see how those two words might share a genetic connection. But how did gumnos acquire an initial G sound? That, of course, would later shift to a soft G sound in English. The word gumnos is the result of a linguistic phenomenon called metathesis, in which speakers shift the order of syllables in a word or change the sounds contained within a word. For instance, in modern English, some people pronounce the word ask as axe, inverting the K and S sounds, and some people, including myself, pronounce the word comfortable as comfortable, which does not reflect the way the word is spelled. Metathesis occurs all the time and in all languages. In the case of the Greek inheritance of the Proto-Indo-European root word nogos, Greek speakers shifted the G sound in the middle of the word to the front of the word. Interestingly, this root word nogwos has experienced a very high number of morphological changes, or word shape changes, in the various languages that inherited it, and this is probably due to the taboo nature of its meaning. Anyway, as we've gleaned from this etymology, Greek men undressed during their athletic training and competitions. While that may put a certain kind of visual in your mind, uh, wanted or unwanted, it doesn't help us visualize the gymnasium itself. So let's talk a little bit about what ancient gymnasiums looked like, where they were built, and how they came to be. The earliest gymnasiums can be dated to the 6th century BCE, though at this point in history, gymnasiums were not contained within buildings or any enclosed structures. Instead, they were large areas of specially designated open land located on the outskirts of cities. They were found close to sanctuary sites, suggesting a connection to ritual or worship. Their main function early on was to prepare young men for the various athletic contests that were so important to Greek cultural life. 
If you've ever read the Iliad, then you know just how much the Greeks loved their athletic contests. The death and funeral of an important citizen could be followed by a week-long stint of ongoing athletic games. There were also the annual and seasonal contests associated with certain religious festivals. As a male citizen in the Greek world, winning any of these contests would have been a very prestigious act. Some of the sports practiced at the gymnasium included wrestling, running, boxing, and jumping, among others. The people in charge of training young men at the gymnasiums were called gymnastai, from which we get the modern English word gymnast. However, the English sense of the word skews the original meaning a bit. A gymnast is someone who performs gymnastics, not the person who trains someone in gymnastics. By the late 5th and 4th centuries BCE, gymnasiums had evolved into actual buildings, and they were now being built within major cities, such as Athens. This era is known as the Classical Greek period, and it's the era of the Athenian philosophers Plato and Aristotle, who we've talked about in previous episodes in this miniseries. Both Plato and Aristotle founded academic schools in their city-state. These were the Academy and the Lyceum, respectively, and both of these institutions had gymnasiums. The Greek milieu saw a fundamental connection between physical and intellectual education, so during this time period, the gymnasium shifted from a place of solely athletic training to a place of both athletic and intellectual or philosophical training. If you recall back to the episode of this series on the word philosophy, philosophia in the ancient world was a little bit different than what philosophy is today. If you missed it, then I recommend checking it out. The introduction of philosophy to the gymnasium totally changed the social role of the gymnasium in Greek life. Gymnasiums became a place to socialize and discuss big ideas, and because they attracted intellectually curious young men, they also attracted teachers, particularly the sophists. The sophists were a group of itinerant, ideologically radical teachers that emerged during this era, whose name ultimately produced the word sophisticated. If you're curious to learn more about that story, there's also an episode for that in this miniseries. The intellectual component of the gymnasiums became so prominent that it eventually came to overshadow their original athletic component. However, the role of athletics in young Greek men's education never fully went out of style. To us in the modern era, or at least to me, it's somewhat surprising how often and how highly someone like Plato speaks of gymnastics over the course of his work. The modern stereotype of the archetypical philosopher is a sedentary figure, but when you actually read the works of the ancient Greek philosophers, they're basically all in agreement that gymnastics is just as important as philosophy in a young man's education. In Greek, the expression, he can neither swim nor read, was a way of calling a young man a good-for-nothing ignoramus. You may have noticed that I haven't mentioned anything about the role of women in the gymnasiums, and that's because athletics, education, and philosophy were exclusively reserved for men in the Greek world. Unfortunately, no surprise there. By the Hellenistic era, so after the conquests of Alexander the Great, gymnasiums had basically become the ancient equivalent of full-fledged high schools or middle schools. They also became one of the defining marks of Hellenistic civilization overall. As the Greek world expanded, 
Greek rulers established gymnasiums in newly conquered cities, which served as a surefire way of locally disseminating Greek culture. After Greece was absorbed into the Roman Empire, Roman emperors, particularly Philhellenic emperors such as Hadrian and Marcus Aurelius, commissioned large gymnasiums to be built throughout the empire. These Roman gymnasiums were similar to their Greek predecessors, but they were often larger in scale and contained elaborate bath complexes. However, the Romans didn't value the traditional art of gymnastics as an important part of secondary education, so the primary athletic function of the Roman gymnasiums was used to train professional soldiers and spectator fighters, like gladiators. The educational function of the gymnasium, on the other hand, basically remained the same. The Romans borrowed the Greek word gymnasion into Latin as gymnasium, giving the word a more conventional Latin ending. Based on the English spelling of the word gymnasium, we know that it was modeled on this Latin borrowing, not on the original Greek. As I mentioned earlier, the word first appears in the English written record during the 1500s. In older texts, you'll see the plural form of gymnasium rendered as gymnasia. This follows the Latin convention for pluralizing words ending in um. Another pair of Latin loan words in English that sometimes follows this model is curriculum and curricula. However, we speak English, not Latin, and the standard way of forming plurals in English is by adding an S, so this is the plural form that I've decided to use throughout this episode. Both endings are technically correct, but nowadays, at least in the US, gymnasiums is by far the more common way of pluralizing the base word. Unlike its Latin and Greek predecessors, the English word gymnasium never had any sense of intellectual training or schooling attached to it. It always meant a large room for indoor sports, in one way or another. By the late 1800s, the shortened form gym was in common use among American students. It was originally regarded as slang, but it's nowadays a pretty uncontroversial word. The word gym also refers to a training center for lifting weights and getting in shape, and in the United States, it's also the word we use for physical education class. The Latin word for gymnasium also has cognates in many other European languages. It was inherited directly by the Romance languages, and it was borrowed into German, Dutch, Danish, Russian, Hungarian, Polish, and Swedish, among others. In these languages, the descendants of the Latin gymnasium don't refer to an indoor space for getting in shape or doing sports, but rather to a kind of school, usually a form of secondary school akin to high school in the United States. For example, in German, a gymnasium is like an American prep school. In Italian, the first two years of high school are called ginasi. In Hungarian, a gymnasium is simply a high school. Regarding this common trend of semantic inheritance, I'm not sure why English is the odd language out. Over the course of my research, I haven't found anything explicit about it. As always, if you know something that I don't know, please reach out to me at wordsforgranted at gmail.com and I will share it on the next episode. As I already mentioned, during the late Roman Empire, the role of gymnasiums had shifted more toward secondary education, so it makes sense that most of its etymological descendants mean school. 
The only lead I could find regarding the singularity of its English etymological descendant is that terms like high school and grammar school are attested in the written record before the word gymnasium was borrowed into English. This may imply that by the time gymnasium was borrowed, its sense meaning school would have been irrelevant because that semantic role was already being occupied by other words. That's just an idea that I had, so take it with a grain of salt. Alright, that's it for this one. Again, if you want to help support the show, patreon.com slash wordsforgranted is your ticket. If that's not in your budget but you still want to help out, why not leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast directory of choice? Those reviews really help the show grow. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter, both of which are at Words for Granted. If you have comments, questions, or concerns about the show, feel free to email me at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. Have a great day. We'll be starting a new mini-series next time, and I can't wait. I'll talk to you soon.